Micah 2, a condemnation of the oppressors and a call to faith in Christ. First, the condemnation in verses 1 to 11, and then faith in Christ, 12 and 13. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and then seize them, and houses, and take them away. They rob a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am planning against this family a calamity from which you cannot remove your necks, and you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. On that day they will take up against you a taunt and utter a bitter lamentation and say, We are completely destroyed. He exchanges the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To the apostate, he apportions our fields. Therefore, you will have no one stretching a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not speak out, so they speak out. But if they do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. Is it being said, O house of Israel? Is it being said, O house of Jacob? Is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly? Recently my people have arisen as an enemy. You strip the robe off a fellow Israelite from unsuspecting passers-by, from those returned from war. The women of my people you evict, each one from her pleasant house. From her children you take my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place of rest, because of the uncleanness that brings on destruction, a painful destruction. If a man walking after wind and falsehood had told lies and said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor. He would be spokesman to this people. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. So their king goes on before them, and the Lord at their head. Amen. We have in verses 1 to 11, first, an indictment, a condemnation of the sins of the people, and then a reminder and hope, an oracle of hope in verses 12 to 13. This is typical of the prophets. It's also typical of the apostles to have a section of judgment oracles, a section on law, a section against the sins of the people, and then a section on grace, redemption, forgiveness for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Micah does here in chapter 2, in the two main sections. First, a lengthy condemnation, and then a brief oracle of redemption. This also should not surprise us, because this is the way of Scripture. Scripture has to emphasize the wickedness of man, expose the wickedness of man, because man in his haughtiness, man in his pride, thinks he's okay, thinks he's just fine, he's good. 
he's not as bad as his neighbor, and that he will die and go to heaven. That's what the average man thinks. Everything will be fine in the afterlife. They don't consider that they are actually very evil, and they are detestable in the sight of God and need his redemption in Christ. They don't look at life that way. Well, Micah, let's first review what he says and then look at some cross-references on some of the verses here. First, let's understand what he says. Verse 1, he pronounces a woe, a condemnation. A woe is a condemnation. It's judgment against these people. Woe to those, and what do they do? They scheme iniquity. They work out evil. These people are schemers. They are plotters. They are deliberately doing evil. A lot of times we think people do evil unintentionally. They're not deliberate. They aren't malicious. It's just accidental. Well, a few times it's accidental, but for the vast majority of cases, people deliberately do evil. They scheme and work out evil. They do it that way. Micah calls attention to that fact. And how do they do it or when do they do it? They do it on their beds. When morning comes, they do it for it is in the power of their hands. Whatever power they have, whatever abilities they have, whatever resources they have, whatever mind they have that God has given them, whatever riches they have, whatever strength they have that God has given them, they don't use those resources, God-given resources for good, but for evil. And at the time when they should be sleeping, causing no harm to anyone, and even helping their own physical health by sleeping, at the time that they should be helping themselves and being peaceful and calm in their own beds, they're not doing that, but they are so fixated on destruction that they can't sleep. They have to stay awake plotting and scheming. It's so insatiable in their hearts to do so. They want the morning to come for them to be able to go out and act for whatever they are trying to accomplish, which would be verse 2. What are they trying to accomplish? Why do they have to wait for the morning? Well, in some cases, evil has to be committed, perpetuated, perpetrated in the morning, in the daytime, such as coveting fields and then seizing them, and houses and taking them away. For example, going to the courtroom, going to the law courts, going to the district court, to the judge, officials, where they are in their office, offering bribes, offering something, doing something in order to persuade other evil men to help the evil men covet fields, seize them, covet houses, rob a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Some evil has to take place in the daytime. Other evil takes place at night. What are they breaking? They're breaking the 10th commandment. Not only the 10th commandment, but the 8th commandment, probably also the 9th, 8th, 9th, and 10th. Stealing, bearing false witness, and coveting. That's what they're doing in verse 2. Verse 3, they are justifiably condemned here. 
That's why God will punish them. Verse 3 is punishment. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am planning against this family a calamity or evil from which you cannot remove your necks and you will not walk haughtily for it will be an evil time. The Lord himself declares, he announces, he threatens that he himself is going to be the author, the originator of the evil, distress, punishment, calamity that this family that God brought up out of Egypt is going to receive. He's talking not only about the northern tribes, but all the tribes, all 12 tribes. This is the family that he brought up out of the land of Egypt. Amos the prophet spoke of this group as a family. He says in Amos 3, verse 1, 3, 1, and 2. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which... He brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. They had this great blessing, this great privilege of being a part of the family of God, this special and unique family delivered from Egypt. Since they were ungrateful, ingratitude was in their hearts, and then their actions showed ingratitude, God is against them. God punishes them with evil because of their evil. And it's inescapable. You cannot remove your necks from it. He's saying it's like an animal, let's say a horse or a donkey that is harnessed, that is trained or is trying to be trained. And the master puts the bridle on it. The master puts a yoke on it. The master does whatever he wants to control this animal, to make it tame, to make it domesticated, right? The master is stronger than the animal. The animal cannot resist. In the same way, God's saying, their enemies are going to put yokes on them, will put shackles on them, would put bonds on them, will put fetters on them in such a way on their necks that they're not going to be able to escape. You are so wild, evil and wild in all of your wickedness that you won't listen to me directly with my loving, kind words of the prophets. So I will send foreigners and they're going to humiliate you, put their yokes on you, and there's no escape. Well, what's the source of all their evil? We said ingratitude. Well, ingratitude is actually preceded by haughtiness or pride, arrogance. Haughtiness or pride bears the evil fruit of ingratitude and then evil deeds. Ingratitude leads to evil deeds. But the source, the root of it all is pride. And they won't be able to escape all of this because God's in control of it. It will be an evil time. It will be a calamitous time for them. They are going to be under the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Four, 
On that day, they will take up against you a taunt and utter a bitter lamentation and say, We are completely destroyed. On that day, the day of their punishment, which in terms of physical calamities, ultimately the northern kingdom destroyed in 2 Kings 17, the southern kingdom destroyed in 2 Kings 24 to 25, the first kingdom in 2 Kings 17 by the Assyrians, the second kingdom Judah destroyed by the Babylonians in 2 Kings 24 to 25. Well, on that day of punishment, which actually did happen to them eventually, what happens when people are humiliated? What happens when people are punished? Those who are onlookers ridicule. They taunt. They mock. They sneer and jeer at what has happened. And this is what's going to happen to them. People will take up a taunt. They'll laugh at what destruction they receive. And not only that, there's going to be a bitter lamentation. A bitter lamentation. Some will taunt and others will lament bitterly. This lamentation reminds us of the book of Lamentations, the Lamentations of Jeremiah. In that book we have the prophet Jeremiah recording the laments or the sorrows of Judah after they were destroyed. If we read that whole book, there are bitter lamentations in that book. Not just there, but elsewhere, such as in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, where they also pray to God, they lament to God, confess their sins, describe their miseries. Nehemiah chapter 9, Ezra chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9. Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, Daniel 9. Each of these chapters describe their miseries and are prayers of confession. Then, we are completely destroyed. If we read those passages in 2 Kings 17, 24, and 25, if we also read Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, if anyone has a tender heart and reads those passages, he cannot help, he cannot help but echo these words, complete destruction. That's how miserable it is. That's how devastated they were. God predicted it in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, and then he accomplished it in 2 Kings 17, 24 to 25. Complete, utter destruction. No escape. Then they say, the people say, he, God, exchanges the portion of my people how he removes it from me to the apostate he apportions our fields. The portion or the fields, their territory, their land, the land of Israel, that was apportioned, that was distributed by lot, which is in verse 5. Therefore you will have no one stretching a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. In the book of Joshua, 
like Joshua 18, Joshua, he distributed by lot to the tribes of Israel the whole land, the whole territory that they conquered. That which God gave to the tribes now will be forfeited, delivered over, exchanged, given over to the apostates. The, the apostates. Who are the apostates? The Assyrians and the Babylonians who worship idols, who have no concern for the things of God, who don't have the word of God. They are the apostates. God gave his land first to his people, then he takes it away from his people and hands them, hands all the territory and even the people to the wicked foreigners. Why? Because of their sin. They have nobody to transfer inheritance from generation to generation, no one to cast lots, no one to be in the assembly of the Lord to handle all of these sacred matters on behalf of the people. No one's there because foreigners have made them slaves. Verse 6, do not speak out, so they speak out. But if they do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. Verse 6, do not speak out. Those are words in quotations. Those words are words of the wicked telling the prophets, keep quiet, be quiet, don't talk like that. You're not helping us. You're not helping the matter. You're discouraging us. You're demoralizing us. We don't want you to speak that way. Don't speak that way. The wicked are saying it to the righteous prophets. But the prophets, they speak out. They keep speaking. They persist in telling them the truth. And why? But if they do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. If the true prophets, the good prophets of God, do not speak out, do not indict the people, do not expose the sins of the people, then what happens? Then the reproaches that are imminent on the people, against the people, cannot be removed. How are we to receive forgiveness of sins? Jesus said so, Luke 24, 46 to 47. Repentance for forgiveness of sins. Repentance for forgiveness of sins. If they want to be forgiven, they need to repent. But how are they going to repent unless a true prophet, the true messenger of God, speaks out against the sins of the people? And then some among the people will repent and avert the reproach of God, avert the judgment of God. There is no other way. The truth has to be proclaimed. The people need to hear it, whether they like it or not. They need to repent and then avert the judgment of God, the reproach, the shame that is imminent because of their sins. That's the only way. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said, Matthew four seventeen. Then 7. Verse 7, this is the prophet, the true prophet, 
quoting the people. He says, Is it being said, O house of Jacob? So Micah is asking them, Is it being said among you wicked people? He calls them house of Jacob, an honorable name, which they are now dishonoring. An honorable name, first of the patriarch and then of the nation, they're called Jacob or Israel, but they're not behaving like him. In fact, Jacob didn't reject the words of God. He didn't reject the prophets of God. He didn't live in sin. He didn't spite God. But here, these people who are named house of Jacob, among them they are saying, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these his doings? What are they accusing God of? The Holy Spirit of God? Impatience. Just bear with me, God. God, you don't understand. God, give me time. God, be patient with me. God, I don't need to repent today. Just give me some time. Wait until I'm married. Wait until I have children. Wait until I'm 50 years old. Wait until I'm 70 years old. Wait until I retire. Wait until I'm on my deathbed, God. Don't be impatient with me, God. That's what they're saying here. Is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these his doings? Is this really who God is? They're saying, is God really like this? Are these his doings? Would God send these fearless prophets to preach this way? Would God threaten this kind of punishment, this kind of utter devastation? Would God actually do this? Are these his doings? The wicked are incredulous with the judgment of God. They don't understand the character of God and they don't believe in the judgment of God. They don't believe in his true character. He's holy, he's righteous, and he's good. They don't believe in that and they don't believe that his punishment will actually come. They don't believe hell is real. Well, his answer... The prophet's answer, Micah's answer, Do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly? Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're portraying me as impatient. You're portraying me as unrighteous, unjust. You're portraying me as not good, uh, as evil. But isn't it dependent on you? Do not... My words do good to the one walking uprightly? You want my words to benefit you? Then repent. Walk uprightly. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to walk humbly, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6 8. He has already told them how to succeed in the sight of God. Verse 8, recently my people have arisen as an enemy. You stripped the robe off a fellow Israelite from unsuspecting passers-by from those returned from war. Here, one countryman works against another countryman. Wait a minute. Shouldn't those in the same country be mindful of each other? Take care of each other? One can understand that a countryman might be attacked by a foreigner, 
But why should one countryman be against another countryman? Don't they have enough sense of patriotism? Don't they have enough sense, sense of humanity, enough common courtesy not to do that to a countryman? And not only that, what is it that they do? They rise up as enemies one against another by doing what? Stripping the robe off a fellow Israelite. What, why are you taking away his robe? Why are you taking away his outer garment? Why are you making him walk from that point on with his only, only with his undergarment? Why are you shaming him like that? Don't you have enough money? Don't you have enough clothing yourself? Why are you doing that? And this is an unsuspecting passers-by. This is an unsuspecting passers-by. They're not even on guard. They think it's safe. They think their countrymen care for them. And you do it to them? Isn't that what malicious, evil people do? They don't let their victim prepare? They catch him off guard? And it's even worse than that. Look at this. From those returned from war. It seems here they're doing it to their soldiers. A soldier who comes back from war, who's exhausted, who's parched, who's famished from war, he's able to make it back to his homeland. He thinks it's safe in his homeland, but it's unsafe. They do this to the soldier who was protecting them from the foreign enemy. How base can you be? How base can it get? Their baseness goes on in verse 9. The women of my people you evict, everyone from her pleasant house, from her children you take my splendor forever. They now not only pounce on the wearied soldier, now they're also pouncing and preying on the helpless women. Aren't men stronger than women? Usually. Now they're pouncing and preying on women. Uh, evicting them from their houses, their pleasant houses, the place that is their territory, right? It's the domain of the woman, her house. And yet they're removing her from her house, her pleasant house. She enjoys it. She enjoys living there. She enjoys her children. From her, whatever her children possess, whatever she possesses, they take it all away. God's splendor, meaning God's gifts, God's benefits, God's blessings to them, you've taken it all away. Verse 10, their punishment. Arise and go, for this is no place of rest because of the uncleanness that brings on destruction, a painful destruction. He's telling them, get up and go out of the land. This land is supposed to be a land of rest. It's supposed to be a land of peace. This is a representation. The land of Canaan was to be a representation, a symbol of heaven, heavenly rest. But you have made it a place of turmoil, Commotion, destruction, thievery. You, this is what you've done here in a place that's supposed to be a land of rest. It's no place of rest. Therefore, you 
who are committing these heinous acts against yourselves and your people get up and go away. They will eventually be forced to get up and go away because they will be exiled. The foreigners, the Assyrians and Babylonians will exile them. And it's going to be a painful destruction when they do that. Verse 11. Who, who do they give, to whom do they give their attention in verse 11? It says, If a man walking after wind and falsehood had told lies and said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor, he would be spokesman to this people. The prophet is saying, if there was a false prophet, a false teacher, a false brother who spoke like this, who spoke after wind and falsehood, wind meaning you can't catch the wind, you can't control the wind. It's the wind, if it's cold, it's going to be bitterly cold. If it's hot, it's going to be a torment to the body, right? This kind of false prophet, false teacher, false brother, he's the one walking after wind and falsehood. If he opened his mouth and told you lies, and if he said, I will promise you wine and liquor, I will promise you wealth enough that you can drink as much wine and liquor as you want, your life can be carefree, you can have pleasure, you can get drunk every night and do whatever you want. If there were false prophets, false brothers, false teachers, they would be spokesmen to this people. The people listen deliberately to their false teachers. His point is very clear. The people appoint, the people choose the false teachers they want so that the false teachers can make these promises to them of wine and liquor. You can do what you want. God loves you still. You can do what you want. There's no punishment. Don't worry about that. You can do what you want. You can live in sin. You can be a drunkard and still go to heaven. It's just fine. At least you're not a murderer. You're not a serial murderer or a rapist. You're just a drunkard. You're just having fun. Everybody needs to have fun. And God understands. That's what the false teachers, the false brothers, preach to the people. And the people love it. That's why he says he would be spokesman to this people. The indictment and the condemnation. Verses 1 to 11. Now turning attention to the remnant, the true remnant, the spiritual remnant, who love and believe in the Lord, the Lord Jesus. Verses 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will, be a no, they will be noisy with men. God says he surely is going to accomplish this. God is the one who accomplishes this. He's the one who punishes, verse 3, I am planning against this family an evil 
from which you cannot remove your necks. But he's also the one who redeems. He is the ultimate punisher. He's the ultimate redeemer. I will surely assemble. I will surely gather. I will put them together. God will do so. He is the ultimate source of this redemption. Further, he says, all of you, Jacob, the remnant of Israel. Jacob, the redeemed Jacob, not the full number of physical Jacob, but the spiritual Jacob, all of you, there is a full number, notice, all, they're also called the remnant. That sounds like an irony, does it not? He says, all of you, and then he says, the remnant. That's because that fewer number, the remnant, in, that is few in, compares, in comparison to the full physical Israel, there's a full number of them. That's why he says, all of you. God has every single number of them counted. And he's going to gather them like a shepherd does. Shepherd gathers the sheep. And there's going to be so many of them. So few in percentage, remnant compared to the full number of them. But many in terms of quantity, because it says they will be noisy with men. Noisy with men means that there's going to be so many of them, you're going to be amazed and startled that God has redeemed, like Revelation 7, 9 says, I saw a great multitude in heaven which no one could count. Whenever there is a great multitude, you can expect some noise, some sound. Whenever they are going about talking and moving about. That's what he's meaning here. I've got a remnant, but it's a numerous remnant. Remnant. Well, who is their redeemer? Verse 13. First, he's called the gatherer in 12, the shepherd in 12. Here, he's called the breaker, their king, and the Lord. Verse 13. The breaker, your Bible, if it does not have a capital B, I believe it should have a capital B because it's a reference to Christ or deity, at least to God, if not Christ, but specifically it is Christ. The NASB capitalizes pronouns in reference to deity, to the true deity. So the breaker, capital B, their king, K for king, capital, because king is synonymous with the Lord. You see that? By the time we get to the last clause, at the Lord at their head, we know who he means. God is speaking and God is referring to himself. The Lord at their head. The Lord is the one who will lead them, go before them. He's the one that is also known as the breaker. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate and go out by it. The breaker is the forerunner. The breaker is the leader. The breaker is the one who blazes the trail for the rest of the people to follow. Here Christ is the breaker who blazes the trail for the rest of the people to follow behind him. He's the breaker, 
He's their king, which means he is sovereignly over them, and he's their Lord. He's even called their head. This is Christ. It shouldn't surprise us that Micah is speaking of Christ. We have a passage in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the oft-quoted passage, Micah 5, verse 2. This is quoted in Matthew 2, 6. Micah 5, 2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. From the days of eternity. Matthew 2, 6, Matthew 2, 1 to 6, makes it clear that this is Christ. In Micah 5, 2. Even in Matthew, the unbelieving rulers of the Jews with unbelieving Herod, they all know that Micah 5, 2 has reference to Christ. And we have it here too. So as the prophets are typical, uh, as is typical of them, they pronounce judgment, they also pronounce redemption. When they pronounce redemption they often point them to Christ. This is one of the evidences of Christ in the Old Testament. They are often pointing the people to Christ, intermingling redemptive oracles with oracles of judgment. We have it here too, in chapter 2. All right, now let's see a few more cross-references on these matters. This idea of people... Scheming and plotting insatiably at night when they should be asleep, peacefully asleep. They don't do it. One example, let's see, we have three examples here. Psalm 36, Psalm 36, verse 4. Psalm 36, verse 4. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. He's on a bad path, and his fundamental problem is he doesn't despise evil. He doesn't look at evil as something despicable to be detested. Proverbs 4. Proverbs 4, 16. Proverbs chapter 4. And verse 16. For they cannot sleep unless they do evil. And they are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. Night is a time of fright. They seek to frighten others. They plot and then they also accomplish. They don't sleep. Micah chapter, no, not Micah, Hosea. Hosea 7 Hosea 7, 6 and 7. Hosea 7, 6 and 7. For their hearts are like an oven as they approach their plotting. Their anger smolders all night. In the morning, it burns like a flaming fire. All of them are hot like an oven and they consume their rulers. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. Their plotting 
Their anger smolders all night. In the morning, they carry out their evil. Now, in verse, verse 3, it, verses 2 and 3, this idea of coveting fields, seizing them, we know from the Ten Commandments, such as Exodus 20, verse 17, the scripture says, you shall not covet. You shall not covet. Yet, they do covet. In verses 2 and 3, they do it, and therefore they are punished. The most notorious example of this is in 1 Kings 21. In 1 Kings 21, do we remember that Ahab the king wanted a field, wanted someone's inheritance, Naboth's inheritance, next to his palace in the city of Jezreel. He wanted it, Naboth, he received it as his inheritance, so he was supposed to keep it in his family. And he even said that to Ahab, that it's the inheritance of my fathers, verse 3. 1 Kings 21, 3, 4, and 6. This inheritance he did not want to give up. Well, wicked Ahab wanted it, and most likely he couldn't sleep. He certainly wouldn't eat. He was certainly sullen and vexed. The text says in verse 4, he was sullen and vexed because Naboth would not give the vineyard, he would not sell it to him, and he wouldn't eat food, it says in verse 4. He lay down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. And usually when, when people don't eat food, they find it hard to sleep. And in this case, his mind is full of turmoil because he wants that, he covets that field, so he's both hungry and he's tormented by the fact that he can't own that field and likely he's not sleeping. It doesn't say he's not sleeping, but likely that's the case. Well, his wife, Jezebel, wicked Jezebel, hears of this. She resolves it for him by calling on false witnesses to accuse Naboth. And the penalty is the death penalty. They put Naboth to death. Ahab and Jezebel happily take possession of the field. And then Elijah the prophet condemns them and threatens them, which was fulfilled in the book of 2 Kings, threatens them with premature death, both Ahab and Jezebel, and even an ignoble, dishonorable, humiliating death in that dogs would eat them and lick up their blood. And it happened to both of them, Ahab and Jezebel. Dogs ate and licked up their blood. Licked up the blood of Ahab, ate Jezebel, and also licked up her blood so that only her bones were left. So God indeed takes covetousness seriously. Furthermore, in verse Verse uh, number six. Verse six. 
Do not speak out. Do not speak out. We have an example of this in Isaiah and also several in the New Testament. First, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah, Isaiah 30, 9. Isaiah 30, verse 9. We'll read 9 to 14. 9 to 14 of Isaiah 30. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions. And to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. This is what the wicked are saying to the true prophet. Get out of the way. Be quiet. We don't want to hear anymore. God's answer to them, 12 to 14. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, since you have rejected this word and have put your trust in, oppressive, in, in oppression and guile and have relied on them, therefore this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant and whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered that a shirt will not be found among its pieces to take fire from a hearth or to scoop water from a cistern. God is going to so shatter them that they're going to be in such small pieces that they can't take a broken piece of pottery to make any use out of it to scoop up water, or even to take fire from a hearth, to be able to transfer the fire, benefit from the fire in any other way. They can't do anything. That's how much they're going to be destroyed and shattered. In the New Testament, we have examples in every other chapter from Acts chapter 4, to 28. Acts chapter 4 to 28, every other chapter is a chapter of the apostles preaching and someone or another, religious authorities, the Jews generally, a mob, the Romans, are telling them to keep quiet, get out of here, and threatening them with death, sometimes stoning them, driving them out, so on and so forth. Acts chapters 4 to 28. This is described by the apostle in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 16. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 16. First, the positive result, and then those who are jealous, envious, who attack the positive results. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, 
who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. They always want the truth smothered and silenced. It's always like this. Further, in verse 10, verse 10, when we practice uncleanness, God is going to get rid of the uncleanness. When we practice it, God will get rid of it. He wants us to get rid of it, and if we don't get rid of it, He will make sure to get rid of it. This uncleanness is described in Psalm 106. Psalm 106, 34 to 39. Psalm 106, 34 to 39. This is the uncleanness of the people, which is common to all of us. 34. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds." Idolatry, murder, these are evil practices. They're unclean, polluted practices. And we Christians should have nothing to do with it, or else we'll be judged by God. Didn't God say to us in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18, to not touch what is unclean? 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will walk in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. If we don't get rid of our uncleanness, God will get rid of it, and it won't be good for us. Some people think that it's okay for the wicked to be wicked. After all, they don't know any better. And we can't have expectations of them. Well, we should have expectations of them. Everybody knows it's wrong to murder. Everybody knows it's wrong to, to commit adultery. Everybody knows an idol has no life. Everybody knows it's wrong to dishonor parents. Everybody knows it's wrong to steal, right? They all know that. It doesn't take the Bible's information 
for people to know that. They already know that. doesn't matter where you live in any part of the world. So if they don't repent and we don't call them to repent, we're going to suffer with them. Because we wouldn't get rid of uncleanness. We wouldn't expect them to get rid of it. We'll all be judged together. Didn't Jeremiah get kidnapped and exiled, sent to Egypt, taken to Egypt, kidnapped to Egypt? Jeremiah chapter 43. Wasn't Daniel the prophet kidnapped, captured among the Babylonians? And didn't he have to serve in the court of Babylon? Daniel chapter 1. He had to suffer. He was righteous. Jeremiah was righteous. Ezekiel the prophet, Ezekiel chapter 1. Was he not captured and sent out among the exiles? And didn't he have to prophesy in foreign territory? Territories? Didn't he have to do that? So it happens. Wasn't Lot, Lot in Sodom? Didn't he have to run out of the city to avoid its destruction? So, yes, we have to avoid uncleanness and preach against the uncleanness of the people. And then, this last section, 12 to 13, on Christ. Christ being our shepherd, our ruler, our king, our Lord. The book of Genesis Genesis chapter 48. Genesis 48 on Christ being our shepherd and ruler. And as you're finding Genesis 48, remember in Matthew 2.6, Matthew says that Christ is not only our ruler, but he also calls him who will shepherd my people Israel, quoting Micah 5.2. So ruler and shepherd, these are interchangeable, synonymous terms to describe Christ. The first example in the Old Testament is Genesis 48, 15 and 16. 48, 15 and 16. And he blessed Joseph. He is Jacob, Israel, who blessed Joseph. And said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, may the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, May the angel who has redeemed me from all evil bless the lads. And may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Who is the angel or the messenger of the Lord who redeemed him from all evil and is the source of the blessing to the lads and is invoked as the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life. Who is this shepherd, this angel, this God? Well, it has to be Christ. Another one, Genesis 49, 49, 24. 49, 24. But his bow remained firm, and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Look at these words. Mighty one of Jacob, shepherd, stone of Israel. Who is this shepherd and stone of Israel? According to Matthew 2.6, it's Christ. 
John 11 also teaches us it's Christ. John, sorry, John 10, verse 11. John 10, 11 to 16. John 10, 11 to 16. Christ says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. Christ is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for us. He gathers all of his sheep into one flock. And this one flock is encompassing Jews and Gentiles, according to verse 16. So even Micah anticipates Jews and Gentiles in the remnant of Micah 3, 12, and 13. He's anticipating the remnant among Jews and Gentiles. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.